If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This morning we'll begin at verse 24. Last week we left off in Luke's gospel with his account of the Last Supper, that Passover meal, the last Passover meal that Jesus would celebrate in this earthly life, actually the last Passover meal he would celebrate ever, uh, with his disciples which not only pointed forward to his impending sacrifice in less than 24 hours as the perfect Passover lamb, he would be offered for the sins of his people bearing God's wrath, but it also pointed forward to this new meal that we partook of last week, this Lord's Supper, as we gathered around his table remembering uh, forever what he would do, but also anticipating another meal the marriage supper of the Lamb that we would enjoy with Christ forever one day in heaven. And as the other gospel accounts make clear, Jesus did this because he loved them to the very end. Luke tells us that that Jesus says, I have so desired to have this meal with you. Jesus loved his disciples. It was with great affection and care that he explained to them once more what he was going to do, what it would accomplish, and gave them this meal to remember him. But there was a shadow that hung over that passage and even that meal because at the conclusion he revealed that one of his disciples, even one of his apostles, one of the twelve, would betray him. That was a shock to the apostles. They couldn't fathom who it would be among them that would betray Jesus. Luke says they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So you can imagine the scene as they are all sitting around this table on the floor and they begin to look at each other suspiciously. Is it you? Are you going to do it? Maybe it's you. You know, you've always been a little weak in the knees when it comes to following Jesus. You're always a little milk toasty in your preaching. I bet you're the one who's going to betray Jesus. As soon the accusations turn to self-defense. Well, it might be you, but I know it couldn't be me. I mean, I, I am surely the greatest of Jesus' apostles. I mean, maybe I'm not as great as this guy, but come on. There's no way I'm going to betray Jesus. And all that leads into our text this morning, verse 24. A dispute arose among, the, among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three, until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. 
He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning, this entirety, uh, the entirety of this passage is driven by this one question that Jesus forces the disciples to ask at the beginning, and that is, what does real, what does true greatness look like in God's kingdom? That is not just an important question, that is an essential question that all of Christ's disciples must come to terms with in every generation. What does greatness in the kingdom look like? The reason why that question is so essential is because we are so tempted to answer it wrongly. We are so tempted not to think clearly about that question and instead to ape the world around us. We are tempted, in fact, we're more than just tempted. It's been the great failing of the church for thousands of years to look at the world and follow its example rather than looking to Christ and following his example. When it comes to understanding our individual identity, our ministry as a church, and our mission as the people of God, it is far too easy to imitate the world rather than be transformed by God in our thinking. What works in the culture of business, education, government, entertainment is very easily absorbed and applied by those in the church. But the result is a weak and feeble, misdirected attempt at serving God. The result of imitating the world is a lifeless church that has all the trappings of authenticity but lacks the spiritual core, the vibrancy, the actual life given by God that comes when His presence is evident and welcomed among His people. In this regard for us today, we are no different than the apostles in this passage. They faced this same temptation. In fact, they had given in to this same temptation to absorb and apply in their life the world's ideas about greatness. And this morning, the challenge for us is to hear Jesus rebuke to them, even to us, and to understand what true greatness is, to understand what it means to be great in Christ's kingdom. And here Jesus not only defines, but also illustrates what that true greatness looks like. And so as we are seeking to understand what he says, as we are seeking to live faithfully as Jesus' disciples, we must do three things this morning in the light of this passage. First, we must imitate Jesus' greatness. We must imitate Jesus' greatness. When this dispute arose among them about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, Jesus was quick to jump into the conversation. This is not why he told them that someone was going to betray him. It was not to start this argument about who would and wouldn't and who was going to be the greatest. And so he jumps in and says, look, don't think about what you're saying here. It's the kings of the Gentiles who talk this way. It's the kings of the Gentiles who act this way. It's the kings of the Gentiles who exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. You shouldn't act like the Gentiles. Now, now in this context, uh, th- that's a huge deal because the Gentiles was everybody except for Israel. 
Anybody who was alive at that time and not a Jew, either by birth or by conversion, was a Gentile. They were outside the people of God and lived overtly according to their sin and their natural tendencies. Moreover, the Gentiles were the ones in charge, even over Israel who had numerous Gentile rulers in the Roman government. Jesus says, look, you know what you hate about them. You know what you hate and despise the Gentiles, but you are being just like them. And you've got to stop. It shouldn't be like that among you. He says, don't be like them whose greatness is marked by power. Instead, you need to strive for a greatness that's humble. A greatness that's humble. Jesus says the Gentiles exercise their lordship over the people. In other words, their idea of greatness is rooted in their displays of power. That could be legitimate power, or it might be illegitimate power, capricious power. Uh, we, we saw previously uh, that one of the Herods who felt threatened in his, in his authority, threatened in his uh, leadership. So what did he do? He just killed off the babies in a town. Didn't go after the one baby that he was looking for and, and, and have some kind of at least potentially equitable sense of justice. No, just wipe them all out. Completely capricious. Completely capricious. Two generals meet in battle. The one who conquers is greater, according to the Gentiles. A ruler who wields more authority, commands more wealth and resources than another ruler of a town, he is greater. But it's not just about power, it's also about how that power is wielded. Jesus says they lord it over them. In other words, they make it clear who is in charge. It's not just a quiet confidence. It's not just a, a, a steady, useful um, display of power. It is, I'm in charge here. I'm in charge here. And yet, and yet even then they demand to be called benefactors. Anybody who lives under their rule must acknowledge that any goodness, any blessing that comes into their life is because of me, the ruler. I am your king. I gave you everything that you have. Power equals greatness in the mindset of the world. And in that regard, nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed in 2,000 years. You name any realm of our society and culture, anything, and greatness is defined by the level of power and authority you have. Maybe not official authorized authority, but authority in terms of influence. You speak and someone listens. So you look to sports, you look to Hollywood, you look to Washington, and it comes down to what kind of power and authority do they do they wield? You say, how do you have authority in Hollywood? Why is it that anybody cares what an actor says when they comment on a social topic? Why? I mean, they get paid exorbitant amounts of money to play act, but our culture has put them in a position of authority, a position of power by giving them influence over us. So when somebody famous says something, oh, we better listen, but why? Well, they're famous. And it works in government as well. It doesn't matter if you have good ideas or not. Are you the junior senator or are you the senior senator on your committee? Are, are you the majority whip or the, in the minority? Where are you at in terms of your power and authority? Then people are going to step up and listen. And what does Jesus say? That should not be the same among his disciples. That should not be the way it is among us today. We should have a different definition of greatness. And Christ's kingdom, true greatness is found in humility, 
not power. Humility. Humility that is clearly seen in service to others. That's why Jesus tells us to seek over a greatness that's humble and a greatness that serves. A greatness that serves. In verse 26, Jesus says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, in Jewish culture, frankly, backwards from today, the older a person was, the more respected they were. The greater they were seen to be in culture. We have that backwards today. The the younger, hipper, newer, you have the more clout. But in this culture, it was the opposite. They respected their elders. Gray hair was a sign of authority, not a sign of old age and you're out of touch. Thus, the younger you were the less great you would have been perceived to be. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't be like the older, be like the younger. Be like the one who does not appear to be great. In fact, be like the one who serves the table, not like the one who sits at the head of the table. Jesus says when it comes to his kingdom, our perceived ideas about greatness need to be junked. It's not about privilege and recognition. It's about humble service for others. Now, part of us gets that. Uh, I've been out to eat with people, nobody in this room, so nobody, you know, start looking around like, oh, is it it them? Is it them? No, no. But I've been out to eat with people, and they have this tendency when they go out to eat to, to, to feel like they are the ones in charge. Now, certainly when we go, the people that are there to serve us, to bring us the food and everything else, are there to serve us. It's what they're getting paid for. But you can be a jerk about it too, right? So if you want to refill on your water, you know, uh, in, you know, you know, trying to get the server's attention, right? And not even speaking to them, just pointing at your water glass when they make eye contact with you. I mean, hopefully, most of us kind of feel an inward revulsion of that. We understand that is not the, the kind of proper demeanor, especially for God's people. But Jesus wants to make it even more clear to them. He says, you know, we came down and we sat at this supper, I was acting as the father, as the host at this meal. But what did I do? Though none of you jumped up and did it, I jumped up, I grabbed some water, I grabbed a towel, and I cleaned all of your feet. I did the slave's job. Does Jesus have power? Does Jesus have authority? Absolutely. But what does he do? He lays it aside for the basin and the towel. He lays it aside to be the one who serves not the one who is served. And thus Jesus in verse 27 roots this definition of greatness in his own life. He says, who is the greatest? The one who reclines the table or the one who serves? Isn't that the one who reclines the table? Isn't it the guy? Don't we just know that the the person who sits at the head, the one who is there and having people bring him food and drink, he's the one who's greater than the one bringing the food. But what does he say? What did I do? I brought the service to you. I didn't just sit at the head of the table. And because Jesus roots greatness in himself and his humility and service, this is why it's completely unacceptable for pride or arrogance among God's people. And think about it this way. Imagine you work for a Fortune 500 company um, and, and you are a person of influence in that company. You are, you are in uh, a high enough position that your face and your name is on the company website in terms of uh, leadership. Second, pay, second click in, there you are. 
There's only a few people above you in the pecking order. And one day, somebody comes into your office and says, just a reminder, next week you're responsible for cleaning out the bathrooms on this level. They're going to laugh in their face. What are you talking about? Do you, do you see the letters behind my name? Do you know the salary that gets auto deposited into my bank account on a weekly basis? Do you have any idea who I am? But then imagine you look out the window and the CEO himself with shirt sleeves rolled up and tie loosened and tucked in is coming out with the mop where he's just cleaned up somebody else's mess for that week. At that point, you have no excuse. The founder and leader of that company has just cleaned the bathroom. Who are you now to say no? All the more so for Jesus and his church. Here is Christ, God in the flesh, the all-glorious being who created the universe and created the universe that it might be to the praise of his glory. He clothes himself in the humility of human flesh, is born not in a palace, but in an animal feeding trough who just before this washes off animal feces from the feet of his disciples before dinner from their dusty and dirty travels. He will go so far in less than 24 hours to die for people. People who do not love him, who do not like him, who sin and rebel and make mockery of his glory. If that's the kind of humble service our God, our leader, our king displays, then who are we to do anything different? How can we in good conscience not be willing to humble ourselves and to serve? That's the kind of greatness that we're called to imitate, the true greatness of Jesus seen in humble service to others. And if we're to do that, then we need to trust in Jesus' provision. We need to trust in Jesus' provision. Jesus is so merciful to us, sometimes in ways that we don't even recognize at first. Even here, he not only gives this disciples an irrefutable command to obey, don't be like the Gentiles. It will not be like this among you. Let the one who is great be the one who serves. But he also provides them the motivation to obey. Jesus assures them that he will provide for them. What does he provide? Two things. First, kingdom fellowship. Kingdom fellowship. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as the Father assigned to me a kingdom you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now last week we saw Judas making plans to betray Jesus in the hands of his enemies. Jesus said, uh, woe to that one who betrays me. Elsewhere he says it would be better if he had never been born. We know by this act he's not a true disciple. He reveals his faithlessness through this betrayal. And very soon after Jesus dies and is raised back to life, he will be replaced by another man named Matthias who was with Jesus from the beginning. And those 12 with a replaced Judas were told here will be given a special place in the kingdom. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says the apostles serve as the foundation of the church. And though we're not given any clear explanation of what that looks like, we're told that they are given a place of leadership in that kingdom as well. But the experience of these apostles that will be shared by all of Jesus' disciples comes in the fact that we will all have table fellowship with him in his kingdom. Jesus says that just as God has assigned to him a kingdom, he will in turn assign a place in that kingdom for each of his disciples to be in fellowship with him. Now, you should say, why is that so merciful? Well, think about these guys for a minute. 
Just think about the disciples. Consider what we know about their past. Consider what we know about their future. So far, they've stayed with Jesus throughout his ministry and all the various trials that he's encountered. They have preached the gospel with him. They have left behind families and wealth to follow him. But they've also been immature with him. They have bickered even here about who was the greatest. They've misunderstood Jesus' plain teaching about the kingdom and about the coming salvation. They've misunderstood his priorities and his mission. But what does he say? There's going to be a place for you at my table in my kingdom. More than just their past, he knows about their future. He knows what's coming for them. And what does he say? There's a place for you at my table. There are times when, by God's grace, we begin to grow closer to God, and we feel it. Usually, our growth in God is a slow, steady walk of increasing obedience over time. And frankly, in the, in the moment, we're rarely aware of our progress. We're just putting one foot in front of the other. And we look back, perhaps over a year, two years, three years, and say, wow, I guess I have grown I'm not the same person I was a few years ago. But sometimes we are unusually aware of the fact that we're getting closer to God. But what that also often means is an increased awareness of our sin. And if we're not careful, that increased awareness of our sin will lead to despair on our part. It will lead to depression on our part. If we aren't careful, we will listen too much to ourselves of, and, and our thoughts of unworthiness, our thoughts of frustration at our sin and the taunts of Satan and finding ourselves actually then falling back, languishing spiritually. Before that happens, we remind ourselves of what Jesus teaches here. We need to preach to ourselves and remember that one day, one day even the least of Christ's people will eat and drink and fellowship at his table. One day all of the church will gather together as a bride and experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. You say, well, how can we be sure of that? I mean, how can we know for sure? Because Christ doesn't just provide this fellowship of the kingdom. Jesus says he is holding on to us that we might not fail. Jesus provides fellowship in the kingdom and he also provides kingly prayers. Kingly prayers. When Jesus talks about this here, I cannot think that help but think that he's thinking back to this original debate among who is the, among the apostles about who is the greatest. Remember a, a while back in our series on Luke, we saw how when, when you were to say someone's name twice, it was a sign of your affection for them, uh, your love for them. So we, we saw for, when, when David, even when he is um, being, uh, his, his kingdom and his authority is threatened by his son Absalom. When, when he hears that he's died, he, he calls out with weeping, Absalom, oh Absalom. And likewise here, uh, Jesus calls out, to, calls out to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus calling out to Peter, that first among equals of the apostles, the rock of the church, and yet also the one who seemed to more misunderstand, goof up and put his foot in his mouth more than any other apostle that we, at least that we have recorded in the Gospels. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But you notice here, actually you, you can't see it, but Jesus, when he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that you is not singular. It's not like you, it's y'all. 
It's all of you, you guys. So, so, so even though Peter is kind of this leader, the, the, the one to whom everyone looks for good or for ill, he, he calls out to Peter knowing his heart, but says, I'm thinking about all of you guys. It's not just Peter. But Satan demanded to have all of you. But, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Much like Job centuries before, the enemy of Christ and his people demands to devour not just Peter, but all of Christ's disciples. And it almost seems like he will win when you read the Gospels. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death with you. And Jesus says, Peter, listen, I'm telling you the truth. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know who I am. You are all talk. You are big men on campus, but you are going to fail. You are going to fall hard in just a few hours. And that's what happens. That's what we're going to see. When Jesus is arrested, all of his disciples scatter. Mark is probably the most honest about his failings. He records in his gospel that when he is with Jesus in the garden as he's praying and the Romans show up, he is so scared that when a Roman soldier grabs his tunic, he drops down, wiggles out, and runs away naked in the night. Scared to death to be associated with Jesus and maybe have to suffer and die with him. All the apostles are no better. All these men here insisting on their greatness, their fidelity and loyalty to Christ, and they will all desert him. All, every last one will leave and flee into the night. Rather than great, they prove themselves to be anything but in just a few hours. But what does Jesus say? Not if you turn, go and strengthen your brothers, but when you turn. That is, when you repent from this failing. When you repent from deserting me then go and do what you've been commissioned to do. Strengthen your brothers. How does Jesus know he's going to repent? Because he himself is praying for him. Jesus is standing before God the Father and he is interceding for Peter, for Andrew, for James, for John, for all of these men that their faith may not fail because their faith is genuine. And this is why Judas falls, but they do not. Jesus, the divine king priest, interceding for his people, ensuring because of his endless love that they will not ultimately fall away. Even in knowing all that we have done, knowing every way that we will fail today and tomorrow and the next year, Jesus likewise is praying for us that our faith may not fail. He assures us that we will not fall away that we will repent. And when we do repent, then we should follow through with the calling that we've been given. If we are seeking to imitate Jesus' greatness by trusting in His provision, then we must be ready to also join in Jesus' mission. This is the third thing that we want to see this morning. We ought to join in Jesus' mission. In verse 25, Jesus says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsacks or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Now, do you remember what Jesus is talking about here? Way back when we looked at Luke chapter 10, if you don't remember that or you weren't here, go and read it this afternoon. Jesus tells 72 disciples, go and preach the gospel. I want you to go out, I'm sending you out, and don't bother to take anything with you. You don't need anything. There is a sense of urgency to our task. Just go, and God's going to provide for you. And that's exactly what he did. 
Now, how did he do that? How did God provide? It, there was no manna from heaven like we've seen uh, in the Old Testament or even Jesus multiplying the bread and the loaves. That happened every once in a while, but not very often. What we see is that Jesus' ministry, the ministry of his apostles, were confined to a pretty small area called Israel. And so what you have from Israeli history and culture is hospitality and generosity that caused them, that those apostles to be provided for. They're going as itinerant preachers and someone hears them, recognizes that they're, they're one of them. They are of like mind and faith. And so they say, well, why don't you stay with us this week while you're in town? And we'll, we'll give you food. We'll put you up. And so, and so they have been provided for. They've been loved all this time. But now Jesus says, all that's about to change. Uh, Something different is going to happen and such is not going to be the case anymore. He says, now, now, verse 36, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me that he was numbered with the transgressors. And what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So as these men seek to join Jesus' mission, as we today need to think about what it means to take the gospel both to our neighbors and to the nations, we must make preparation for the mission. We must make preparations for the mission. Jesus knows that just in a a very short time now, uh, this gospel commission that they have is not going to be limited to Israel, just the opposite. It is going to explode out into the land of the Gentiles. The message of Christ is going global, and they're going to be among a people who will not know them, who will not love them, who will not care for them. Think about Paul's example in Acts. When he goes to plant a church, he does it how? How? He doesn't show up and say, I'm going to collect an offering tonight. And if you just plant your seed of faith, I guarantee you that God's going to bless you. That's not what he does. He goes and he works as a tent maker. He buys supplies and he sells his tents in the marketplace to provide food for himself. And then he goes about preaching the gospel. And once a church is formed, once it is solidified, once it has leaders, he bids them farewell and God's rich blessings. And then he moves on to plant another church. And over time, as those churches get stronger, they show their affection for Paul, their love for him, their care for him, that their concern for the cause of Christ, and they might send him money to support him, to help him as he goes on planting. But when Paul's on the front line, he's not relying on any of the Gentiles to support him. He is self-sufficient in his ministry. And part of the reason is because he is not welcomed everywhere he goes. My favorite story from Paul is in Acts when he goes to Ephesus. And he finds some people that are there that are listening and believing, but by and large, he literally starts a riot in one of the biggest cities of the Roman Empire. For hours, that they are chanting and rioting. Why? Because Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it liberated sinners in bondage to false gods, and suddenly the business of idolatry and witchcraft begins to wane in Ephesus. And they say, what in the world is going on? Nobody's buying the idols anymore. It's this guy, Paul. And so they want to literally kill him. They want to drag him to the streets and and have him murdered. And so you just imagine all these people rioting, rioting, rioting. You think Paul's going to say, okay, now listen, Gentiles. I'm I'm here because of Christ. You need to give me some money and support me so I can have some food. He barely makes it out of there alive. 
And so what is Jesus saying? He says, look, things are not going to be the same. You need to be prepared for what's different. You need to prepare for the difficulty that's going to come. Take provisions, support yourself, be ready to protect yourself from thieving highwaymen. The world, the flesh, the devil are going to resist this gospel offensive. Be prepared for what is to come. This might look like many different things today. In fact, as believers try to apply these passages, many of them stumble over this issue of the swords. Jesus said before, you don't need a sword, but now he says, you better better get one. In fact, if you don't have one, sell a cloak and buy it. And Jesus' point, of course, is not that we go on some kind of holy war and threaten death if people do not believe, okay? That's not what he says. You say, how do you know that? Because he himself has preached against that in the Gospels, and The history of Acts and how the church went forward doesn't show them doing that, nor does the teaching and explanation in the letters show that. In fact, Paul very specifically says in Ephesians 6 that any resistance we fight is not against people. It's about spiritual forces. And so I think what Jesus is saying is, look, you've got to be able to defend yourself against wild animals, against robbers. I mean, the, the Roman Empire was not a safe place to travel in the first century. And so he's saying, look, you just got to be ready for, for, for what's going to come. And today, what might that look like? How can that be applied? Well, it could be something as simple as locking your door at night. We, we live in a bad part of town. When people make the decision to uproot from the nice, cozy suburbs and go into urban areas where that are riddled with crime, that they might bring the gospel and see places transformed, what should they do? They should put a lock on the door. They should put bars on the windows. They should take precautions against just natural crime and sin for their family. But it might be more than that as well. One of my favorite stories from my research this week comes from China, where there has been a missionary plan called Back to Jerusalem Plan. The goal of these Chinese Christians is to travel back along the old Silk Road, which was the, 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 the trading lines during the Renaissance. They're going back through Asia, the Middle East, and into Europe, taking the gospel with them. And the missionaries that are specifically being trained for this mission not only learn Bible, theology, and disciple-making, they also learn practical skills like lockpicking how to escape from handcuffs, how to jump out of second-story windows without breaking any legs. You say, why in the world are they learning that? Well, here's what one of the leaders says. We know that sometimes the Lord sends us to prison to witness for Him. Sometimes God's going to put you in chains, and He wants you there for a reason. Stay there and preach the gospel. But, he says, we also believe the devil sometimes wants us in prison to stop the ministry that God has called us to. We teach the missionaries special skills so they can escape and keep serving. I think I want to go to that school. Now, that may seem like worlds away from us, but the idea of being prepared is not. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. What are we doing to prepare for the mission that God has called us to? This mission is not just about international missions. It's not just about going to some far-off place. It, It starts with our neighbors. It starts with our community and our city. As we think about what that's going to take to fulfill that mission, we ask ourselves, first of all, are we just prepared to part with our earthly goods? Are we prepared to sell things to support the cause of Christ in missions? Maybe things will not be taken from us, but maybe, maybe we need to be able to, to cash in CDs and sell extra cars or give them away to others who might need them, not only in our care, but perhaps around the world. Are we prepared with clear gospel thinking? 
so that in any circumstance at any time when the opportunity presents itself, we are able to bear witness for Christ. Perhaps for us today, most challenging, are we secure enough in Jesus? Are we secure enough in our identity in Him that we are not ashamed to speak His name? that we're not afraid to be made fun of, that we're not afraid to lose friends when we talk about Jesus, a man who died and came back to life as the Lord of all things. Most of us need to start there. Most of us, well, maybe some of us, are willing to give away vast amounts of money, but are scared to death to open our mouth in the marketplace, to take shots on our person and be made fun of because of Jesus. We must be prepared at wherever we're at, whatever level, for the mission that He has called us to. But more than that, more than that, we must also be prepared for the persecution that's going to come. We must be prepared for the persecution that's going to come as we identify with our Messiah in His mission. Did you notice that the heart, what lies at the heart of this warning, verse 37? Why should you be prepared? Why should you do these things? For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 53. There God says his servant will pour out his soul to death and will be numbered with the transgressors. He will bear the sin of many and make intercession for them. Jesus' humble service leads us, leads him to death on a cross. Not for himself, but for others. He was numbered with the transgressors. That means he was considered to be a sinner. He was considered to be an outlaw. He was considered to be a rebel by the Jewish and Roman authorities. And therefore they killed him like any other serious offender in Rome by crucifixion. Yet God didn't view his death the same way. God didn't just count him as among the sinners, but as the vilest of sinners. God reckoned Jesus as sin itself, the fullness of rebellion and transgression. The cross was no mere death in God's eyes. There his own perfect, innocent, righteous son stood in the place of sinners and bore the fullness of God's wrath for them. And after atonement was made, God ended the hostilities and shown his approval, his appreciation, his acceptance of Christ's obedient sacrifice by raising him back from the dead, by giving him authority over all things. But the hostility of the world's never going to go away. God's wrath might be fulfilled, but theirs isn't. And so the message of the cross is always, to go, always going to be offensive to the world. They will always hate him, and if we preach him, they will always hate us. And just think about today when you read books and television and see interviews. There, you know, atheism is kind of having this resurgence. But apart from a few voices, it's always Christian atheism. You never find people mocking Hindus. You find people afraid to speak out against Muslims. But boy, they take a special delight in blaspheming Christ, don't they? And all of us who identify with him will also bear that reproach. When we claim the name of Christ, we will share in his derision and hatred. We might suffer wrongful charges of crass critics, and in other parts of the world we know that we will also suffer the blade from our vile persecutors. The question is, are we prepared for this? Again, not, not just for some global thing. I'm just talking about how we live our life day to day. Are we prepared to join Jesus in this kind of mission? 
Almost 15 years ago, Wycliffe Bible Translator's newsletter featured a testimony from a missionary in Papua New Guinea. He was working among the Atamal people, and that people, for them, the most important person was identified as the one who sat in the middle of a three-person canoe. The second most important person was the one who sat in the bow of the canoe, and the least important person is the one who sat in front paddling. You say, well, why do we need to know this? Well, you don't accept that when it came time to translate Jesus' words about greatness, about Him saying, is the one who reclines the table the one who serves the greatest? I'm among you as the one who serves. Here's what they translated for this people group. If a person wishes to be a leader, he should not sit in the middle of the canoe. Let him sit in the stern. Let him do everyone's work. That's the mark of true greatness according to Jesus. And the power that we have to live that kind of life is not just in our good intentions. It's not just in our gumption. It's not just in our determination. It is provided by Christ himself and his atoning death. A power that liberates us from sin, that liberates us from fear, that gives us a new orientation and a new life where things like sincerity and humility and service will begin to come naturally to us. More than that, our forgiveness, our acceptance, the assurance that Jesus is praying for us, that we will enjoy fellowship in the presence of His kingdom should lead us to spread the fame of His name and be ready for whatever difficulty comes because He has called us to this mission of spreading the joy of knowing Him among all peoples. Father, we pray that as we think about what Jesus has taught so many years ago, but even today is still teaching to us. We pray that we would have heard His voice, that we would seek to imitate His actions and obey His commands. Father, we pray that You would help us to not be a proud people, to not be an arrogant people. Father, even on this morning when we are about to elect those that will be called servants among us, those that will have the position of deacon, Father, may all of us See it as our calling to be deaconing among one another, to be serving one another in various capacities, in ways that display our humility and our love for one another. Father, may all these things culminate in our fearlessness in telling people about Jesus, the King who served even to the point of death. Father, we ask this in His name. Amen.